Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome back to another future-looking episode of Software Gone Wild. You might remember that flying DeLorean coming out of Juniper a while ago called Self-Driving Networks. There's another one. This one might be a bit more real. It's called Network Reliability Engineering. And today we have with us Matt Oswald, well known for his automation and container and whatever other things in the past. Interop rants. Yes. Great blog posts. And then he disappeared into a black hole and came back wearing a Juniper hat. So welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Ivan. Yeah, I'm working at Juniper these days. But actually, it's funny. I spent some time doing more of the sort of the strict software development for a number of years. I'm continuing to build those skill sets. What I'm doing at Juniper is actually kind of unorthodox. I'm working under the Mike Bashong's team at Juniper, which is enterprise marketing, which sounds kind of weird coming from somebody with a software development background. But it's actually kind of cool. I'm getting to apply the same technical skill sets to effectively a new, not necessarily a new audience, but a new platform, you know, on the marketing team at Juniper. You know, I'm able to keep building my technical skill sets, but I'm also able to apply it in a whole different way, which is really interesting. So Mike is back at Juniper. Yeah, in fact, it's funny. I sort of followed him. We worked together very briefly at Brocade back in the day. I was hired onto the Stackstorm team, so we weren't exactly you know, directly connected in the org chart there. And it was only for, I think, one or two months. But he very shortly after left to go to Juniper. I think he was, you know, he heard I joined. He's like, oh, man, I can't be in the same company as Matt. <laughs> but you wanted to punish him, right? So you followed him. Yes. Oh, oh, I showed him, yeah. You know how we first met with Mike, right? I think so, yeah. Was that NFD6? It was NFD1. Oh, wow. That was before my time. And it was Halloween, and he was dressed as a Smurf. Oh, that's right. I remember seeing that, the Verf Smurf. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that was good times. Before we move into network reliability engineering, as always, Chris Young is with us to keep me honest and ask all the network management questions. Hi, Chris. This is a pleasure to be here. I actually was really lucky. I got a sneak preview on this. So I'm quite, as a community member, not as just a Juniper fan, because of course, I don't work there. Really interested in this project and what Matt and Derek and team have been working on. This is going to be fun. Okay, so let's dive right in. Matt, what is this network reliability engineering thing all about? You know, this is actually a concept that's not really Juniper specific. Um, in fact, what we're really doing at Juniper is we're latching onto something that the community is, and the industry has started to latch onto themselves. Um, our main goal in this is to help promote the same concepts that we're seeing trending up, but primarily to get people that haven't really traditionally been involved in the conversation that think you know, say network automation is something that's not really for them because they're not a certain, you know, scale or you know complexity in their network and get them involved with this stuff because we feel like it's a lot broader than just simply, you know, I have a large network, so I must automate it. The conversation's way more nuanced than that. And so the reason we as Juniper are involved in this, you know, our motivation is just to get more people, you know, on board. And of course, we benefit from that because the more people doing automation, you know, we, we have good automation tech, so we get people using our stuff. But it also happens to be true that you know, the industry would benefit from this as well, because again, you know, I think, I think everybody on the call would agree there's some real meat to this stuff. It really benefits you regardless of, 
you know, the scale you operate on. You don't have to be Google or Facebook to observe the benefits of automation. So it just so happens that this new concept is something that I think benefits everybody. Now, in terms of the origin story here, again, we didn't invent this. And in fact, network reliability engineering as a term isn't necessarily original content in and of itself. It's heavily inspired by something that's way more popular called SRE, which is a term that Google popularized and has since gone pretty crazy throughout the industry to describe a new way of doing operations in general. So Google, you know, they don't really call them, you know, sysadmins anymore. They call them site reliability engineers. And, and a lot of companies have, have taken into doing that as well. The main purpose of this refocusing on reliability is going in with eyes wide open. We're no longer just, you know, clicking buttons and pulling levers. What we're doing is we're engineering a solution to aim at a specific outcome. Like my outcome as a business is to provide this service at a certain amount of uptime, but also with a certain amount of, you know, room for innovating and moving forward with new features. It's effectively an understanding that everything has trade-offs. You can't just make, you can't just say like my network needs to be up 100% of the time. You can try to do that, but you have to understand that you're making trade-offs elsewhere by making that statement. You're doing things like limiting how fast you can move forward with new features and, and respond to customer changes. And conversely, you know, you can make your network as your, you can make your infrastructure, your applications as, as in, you know, innovative and dynamic as possible, but you're probably going to have some problems with uptime. So you really have to understand from a reliability perspective, it's not necessarily about engineering things to be 100% reliable. It's about making trade-offs with eyes wide open. And in that respect, NRE is no different. You'll hear from uh, folks like Google who are really leading the charge with the SRE message is that, you know, SRE is effectively a specific implementation. It's a specific job role that implements, they call, they use programming constructs. So they say like, if SRE is a class, it implements the interface uh, DevOps. It's a specific job role, a specific tangible thing you can aspire to be that implements the philosophy and the principles of DevOps. And again, in that respect, NRE is no difference. It's a slightly different coat of paint because you know, network engineers traditionally have had different tools, different um, methodologies, different blast radius. It's just a different discipline. But we feel like NRE is, is a good way of looking at the exact same principles. We're not you know, doing something totally different from SRE. The same principles observed in a slightly different way. Well, ignoring the Google reference, because 90% of what they do in public is just recruitment drive. Yep. What you just described sounds like a hefty dose of common sense. Mm -hmm. So are you saying stop listening to marketers, stop reading white papers, focus on how things actually work and stop doing stupidities and build stable networks? <laughs> you know, honestly, in terms of the information that's out there, I've always been a fan of uh, I think I learned this from some of my friends and, and colleagues. I've always been a fan of just taking in all the information you can, as long as you do it with eyes wide open. Any data, any information is a good data point. So take the white paper example. You see a white paper out there that's published by a vendor that is meant to promote a certain technology. There's underlying truths there. Note that the vendor is going to promote what's good for their business. That's the nature of what they do. They don't do anything that doesn't help them, you know, for the most part. So just understand that eyes wide open. But underneath all of that, you know, it, let's take DevOps as an example. It's a crazy buzzword. You know, it totally doesn't, you know, everybody I think would agree. It kind of doesn't mean anything anymore. Same thing with SDN, same thing with all these other buzzwords. I've always been sort of a little bit skeptical of these things when they come out. And I've also been a little bit excited when they come out because it's something new. I think everybody has that same reaction. And so inevitably, when, you know, these buzzwords get crazy and, and you see a new technology hit the ground and, uh, you know, people just start running with it to, to define it the way they want to define it. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of that sort of marketing fluff. But I think it's important to understand that there's always some sort of truth behind that stuff. Just like you can't take everybody uh, at their word and say, like, you know, I'm going to do everything that this vendor says to do. Because, again, they, they do everything that motivates them. 
But similarly, you can't shut yourself off to those things because then you're not going to learn anything new, right? It's kind of like what you were saying before. You got to take everything with a little bit of common sense. There's a little bit of truth in everything that you see out in the industry. And even though there is a significant amount of, of hype, that's probably a little bit over the top. There's always some sort of underlying truth that I think is beneficial to learn. So if you can go in with eyes wide open, you'll benefit. It's a variation on trust, but verify. Yeah, exactly. You know, SDN meant something very specific at the beginning and it changed wildly over time. And I think, you know, if, if everybody were to, if you were to ask anybody to define SDN these days, obviously nobody would come up with the same explanation, but I think the benefit of that whole conversation isn't in any specific technology that came out as a result. It was the conversation that it kickstarted. We're actually talking about managing our networks differently, which is a huge positive change, I think. There's always a silver lining. It should have just been sensibly designed network. That would have made a difference. <laughs> you see, the problem with that is that the moment you start sensibly designing networks, all the vendors are out of business because you don't need 90% of the features they're pushing at you. There is that, but there's also, I have found... And I found this working as professional services, as a vendor, and as a customer. I've been able to, in my career, operate in all three of those zones. And I find the vendors and anybody doing pro services, so any VAR, that kind of a role, has no clue about operation. So they don't actually understand why what they're doing is not sensible, because they don't have to be there day two. So that's always been kind of a fundamental looking even at from a kind of a pre-sales role, is I've seen a lot of the peers, they they're actually incentivized. They are paid to get out as quickly as possible. So they don't have to deal with it. Well, there is that, and that's definitely a factor. The other problem is that if you start building, you know, reliable, stable networks, they're boring. And you can build them with any gear that anyone has ever sold. Well, maybe the last five years, okay. And you follow the cookie cutter recipes that work, and anyone could do that. So where's the added value? We I, could create I, I, Trill again. New chipsets. <laughs> we're not, we're like 10 minutes into the call, man. Why don't you wait until later for that shit? <laughs> Sorry for my grudgy moment. Let's get back to the shiny new technologies. Well, lifestyles. Let's call it lifestyle. So is NRE a lifestyle or is it a technology or is it a blueprint or what is it? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a, a technology for sure. I think it doesn't necessarily devalue the specific technology. As you say, Ivan, we like to talk about software, but at the end of the day, it all runs on hardware. You can't ignore any one aspect of this. Otherwise, you'll have blind spots. So it's not a technology, but I would say, you know, technology reapplied, right? This is a new way of doing your operations. So it's less about, way less important to focus on what you're doing in this space. It's way more important to focus on how you're doing it. You know, take a CICD as an example, right? We talk about doing CICD for networking, and this is something that software developers have done for a long time to help help make sure they're building more, you know, reliable pipelines for delivering software. We can observe some of the same behaviors in networking, I think, quite easily, in fact. But like the software space, there's about 10 leading tools in just that space alone for doing CICD. So which one's better? I think the conversation around, you know, doing feature comparisons between these different tools is something that needs to happen. But it's a fairly straightforward conversation. You figure out what kind of things you need, and then you pick the solution you want. It's way more important to understand why you're implementing that technology and how to use it in the best you know, sort of in the spirit that it was intended. Anybody can write an Ansible playbook to go automate a thing, but if you haven't adopted different ways of applying changes to your infrastructure, things like doing code review, things like doing automated testing, what you've really done is you've just simply replaced your fingers with a script or with the playbook or a tool, which again, it's change. It's, I would say, positive change. You do things a little more fast. Oh, you break the network faster, yes. 
I don't know that I would agree with that. You go from running with scissors to running with chainsaws. Yeah, running chainsaws. Yes, I love the fact that as a industry, as a profession, we're embracing these concepts, but I totally see too large of a segment that are running to try to apply tool of choice. I don't care which one, custom Python code, and let's roll it out. And there's no, no testing. Like they don't even understand what they would want to test. Mm-hmm. And that terrifies me. Well, you see, that's the problem of Google and based practitioners. I mean, why should we call them engineers? They see something somewhere in a blog post and they go like, yeah, I can do that. And yeah, they make it work. No problem. And they think that's it. Yeah, I think this is sort of where like my head has been for about a year and a half. Like we can't just throw tool recommendations over the wall. Clearly, there's more to the conversation than that. I think it's a good step in the right direction to to say, you know, instead of using instead of logging into every device manually, I'm going to use Python. Like that's a good thing. That's a net good thing. But it's just not enough. It's not the whole conversation. I think the onus is on those of us that have gone a little further to sort of help share the love, as it were, and keep building on those technical skill sets with more of the process and the cultural improvements that I think are absolutely necessary to use these tools to their best effect. So what are you guys doing to codify and to gather and collect and document those best practices or, or the, those guidance? Is there anything that you guys are actually working on to that someone could go and, and how do I learn to do this the right way, or at least to learn these principles? Yeah, I mean, this is basically what we built in NRE Labs. Like, this is the main problem that we wanted to focus on. You know, we're not coming out with a new automation tool, at least not right now. We're, you know, this isn't something product that we're releasing. This isn't uh, really even a Juniper service. This is a community service that Juniper happens to be sponsoring just because obviously it needs to be built. So they paid us to build it and then they're paying the cloud bills to actually run it on the back end. But the way that these concepts are presented is, is in a sort of no fuss, totally in the browser including SSH connectivity, you can actually terminal into all of these network devices and Linux boxes or any number of things we can get into to learn how to apply these skills in sort of the right way. So yeah, there's a lesson, say, on Python or Ansible that says, here's how to create a playbook and here's how to run it. But it fits into the grander scheme of here's where you would want to use this playbook and here's how you would make changes to your network in as safe a way as possible. Things like, you know, learning how to use Git for version control how to interact with uh, GitHub or GitLab to do code reviews. And similarly, using something like GitLab to do automated CICD, so you can actually run you know, sort of automated testing on your playbooks or on your Python scripts to do things a little more safely rather than just write a script on your laptop and run it there. So one of the things we did with this portal is, obviously, we wanted to make it super easy to learn these things. That's why we built everything into the browser. You don't have to set anything up. You just go to one of these web pages, and it loads up all the resources for you in the back end. And you're just simply presented with a learning opportunity in the brow- all in the browser. But we also wanted to make sure that everything was highly contextualized. This is something we're actually working on right now. We released NRE Labs uh, last early last month, so it's been out for a little bit, but we're, we're not done. We're, we're continuing to build into this thing. One of the things that we're going to be doing very soon is linking different lessons together. And so, like I said, if you want to use Ansible, that's great, you know, but we're going to highly recommend that you start with something a little more fundamental and we'll show you, well, there will be a, there will be basically a guide to do that. So if you start in with statement of, I want to learn how to do X, like I want to learn how to do configuration management on, on my network, it's probably going to point you to something like the Ansible lesson, maybe a few other lessons, but it's also going to point you to some of their prerequisites that are not hard prerequisites, but they're strongly recommended. Like for instance, it's a really good idea to learn YAML. It's a really good idea to learn Git probably a really good idea to learn Python. And this is the kind of context that tends to get lost if you just sort of either start Googling or hear people talk about Ansible over Twitter. 
because, you know, people, and I'm guilty of this, people, they get involved with these tools and, and the way of doing things, and they sort of gloss over the subtle learning experiences that they had along the way that builds up to it. You know, they didn't pick up a computer on day one and then learn Ansible on day two. You know, it's just not how it goes any at any point. Everybody has a very nuanced learning uh, journey, and I think it's worth describing to folks that haven't gone down that journey yet. Well, Matt, as much as I like what you guys are doing, what really worries me is that with something like NRE Labs, you are unintentionally, from my perspective, promoting the script kiddie mentality. You know, if we look into the traditional software development, and uh, we've both been there on and off, you know that you have the script kiddies, you have the coders, you have the programmers, and then you have the software developers and software engineers and software architects. And what most people do with Google-based approach to Ansible playbooks is really just being smarter script kiddies. And I don't think that we should allow script kiddies to manage our networks. Yeah, so I don't know that this problem can get solved with one particular initiative. I, I think it, not even just in networking, the idea of just you know looking on the internet for code is, is a problem that's not new and it's not going to get solved anytime soon. And certainly, if you want to go on NRE Labs and just copy one of the Ansible playbooks and run it, I think your mileage may vary. Who <laughs> would definitely describe that experience for you, I would expect. So I do want to be clear, this isn't really meant to fix that issue. I think that that issue is just going to be, that's going to be reality for a lot of folks. And certainly, if you're looking for, let's say you're looking for staff to help manage your network in a new way, uh, to observe the sort of the network reliability engineering principles, you should certainly, you know, vet those folks and make sure that they actually sort of know what they're doing. Again, I don't think this is new. This is this is just new technologies, new processes, but same old due diligence around staffing and around skill sets. But in terms of what NRE Labs is meant to do, I think the main problem we were trying to solve isn't necessarily training people end to end, like, you know, starting with nothing. And then and then at the end of NRE Labs, they know everything about what they're going to do. I don't think that was the intention. Certainly, Juniper has paid offerings. Uh, I know, you know, a lot of folks, they subscribe to your courses, Ivan, for going way deeper. NRE Labs isn't meant to go there. The goal of NRE Labs was way earlier in the process. I think, you know, a lot of the customers we talk to, they're really just not still not doing much meaningful automation at all. And the main reason isn't, it's twofold, I think. The main reason they, they either don't think that it's for them. And so they just write the whole thing off. They're like, okay, you know, I keep hearing references to these hyperscalers doing automation. And so I, because I only have, you know, a couple hundred network devices that doesn't apply to me. There's that camp. And then there's also the camp that maybe wants to do automation, but either they got burned by, you know, the whole scripts gone wild thing. Or perhaps they don't know what's out there. I mean, I just talked to a guy who lived in Portland, Oregon. I was just talking to a customer two weeks ago. They had never heard of Jinja templating. You know, this is a fundamental skill that we take for granted in the network automation space because it's just one of those things you just run into inevitably because of the way network automation works. But there's just a lot of folks out there that have just never heard of it. You know, not everybody's, you know, reading all the blogs and podcasts and tweets. Let me ask you one question. Sure. Do these guys have in-house software development? Often they do, they just don't know about it. Is the software development working with COBOL or Python? Usually Python, if it's between the two, I would expect. So, you know, what really bothers me is that these people don't just go and buy the software developer guys a beer or a lunch or a pizza or whatever and tell them, hey, we have this problem that we are solving with Excel formulas. Could you guys write something better for us? Yeah, that would be a great idea. I think the main problem isn't that they don't like those people or that there's some sort of an adversarial relationship there. I think there are certainly some shops I've ran into where that is the case. But I think largely 
It's just a matter of, I don't necessarily know that that's even possible. As a network engineer that's worked in the network engineering shop, there's other lines of business. I view the sort of the software development teams very similarly how I view accounting. It's just a very different discipline. I don't expect that there is any synergy there, even though the, you and I know that that's possible. I know plenty of people that just sort of view those sort of separate software development shops or teams as just another line of business that they don't really have much in common with. But I agree. I think that there are a lot of things that can be learned there. And I think one of the things, a lot of what we do in, in the NRE Lab stuff, and even before NRE Labs, you know, the demos that we would build, that I would build, I would go do talks. And we've all done talks on using various automation tools. Again, it's not necessarily full-on training. It's, it's meant mostly to just illuminate folks with what's out there, what's possible. A lot of folks don't even know that Jinja templating is possible. They don't even know that you can use a tool to push configuration changes and mask to network devices. And similarly, if you're talking about, you know, organizational dynamics and, and knowing what teams are out there, I think the biggest thing you can do is just start to teach people some of these terms, you know, terms like CICDs, terms like uh, automated testing, things that software developers take for granted. And what that does is, is obviously it teaches new tools, new ways of doing things, of course, but it also builds a shared vocabulary. And then you'll start to overhear, you know, across the cube wall, somebody will say CICD and you'll say, hey, I, I heard about that on a podcast or I'm trying to learn about CICD for networking. Can you tell me more about how you do it? I think starting that shared vocabulary and just helping people know what they don't know, that's a huge problem. You know, not knowing what you don't know, you can't fix that. You have to know what you don't know first. And that's the main goal of these initiatives. It's to help people understand that there is a lot more out there. It's not just a discipline you can stay isolated in anymore. You know, the world is changing. And I think getting that shared vocabulary helps open up those avenues for your communication. I think it's totally a good idea that you should totally buy your development teams a beer and ask them how they do things. I think I would agree with that, though, Matt, is you need to know who you need to be buying a beer for first. And, and if you see no parallels between what you're doing, which I think if from a traditional, if I look at a traditional network professional, I'm not going to call them an engineer at this point, um, they're CLI jockeys. Why would I ever need code if mm. code isn't going to help me type in enable conf t int whatever? Half of those guys don't even know regular expressions work from an iOS CLI. It wouldn't occur yeah. to me if I was sort of embroiled in that culture, it wouldn't occur to me that I could benefit from learning from software developers because I just don't, again, I, I view them in the same way that I would view accounting or HR. It's just another team with another discipline. And I think to your point, you found about the script kitties. I don't know if that I see there is the possibility of that, but I, I kind of take a different angle that when I was approaching, so I did not come from a software development background. Like I think you both did, right? I had to pick this up all on my own and kind of learn bits and pieces and anything that I wanted to learn about CICD and Agile, I'm going to read Jez Humble's books and trying to create connections between what a pure software development platform workflow would look like and in my head to try to imagine what that might look like connected to my own particular discipline. And so I think what NRE kind of gives of what I've seen of it, it starts to take and, and packages the same ideas, philosophical approaches to how this workflow might look, but presents it in a way that's more familiar to me as a networking engineer. So I understand how these tests might work and what they might look like a little more. I see it being easier for someone if you want to actually learn, which that's a prerequisite. You have to want to learn it. But if you do want to learn it, I think it's going to be easier to get that knowledge. It's, it's less of you know standing on the shoulders of giants, if you will. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It has to be relevant to what you're doing learning Python by, you know, going through Code Academy and working through Hello World examples isn't exactly motivating. <laughs> Mine was trying to figure out how to program a video game that had nothing to do with my day job. I'm like, I don't want to do trigonometry. It doesn't, yeah. 
Well, it's fun. Trigonometry is actually fun, but let's not go there. <laughs> that was last week's podcast. That was last week's podcast, exactly. I can't tell you how much I agree with everything you two said. It's just that, you know, I see networking engineers running toward, I have to be a programmer goal. And I think that's bogus. Because why should we compete with something that someone invested 10 years into, like we invested 10 years into becoming a networking expert? And I totally agree that we have to have this common language and we have to know that those guys can help us. Mm -hmm. But I think that we should actually go over there and ask them to help us and not reinvent the wheel on our own. Because, you know, we will end up with heptagonal wheels in the end. Mm -hmm. Like everything else, I think the real answer is somewhere in the middle, right? And it's not necessarily one side of the one extreme or the other. We shouldn't be becoming software developers and building our own tools for, you know, to reinvent the wheel. And we also shouldn't be expecting software developers to take over and, and do the whole networking thing for us, right? Oh, we know how that ends. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorite soapboxes, actually, and I'll try to keep it brief. But I like to break this down into the difference between a skill set and an occupation. As a network engineer, your occupation and your skill set is networking. It's an important occupation to have, or an important skill set to have, because I think it's applicable in a lot of places in technology. But it's not just that that's your skill set, that that's the skill set you have. It's also your job. It's also your occupation. You're applying those skill sets in a very specific way. That's what an occupation is. And similarly, software developers, they learn all of the different primitives of different programming languages, and they learn different tools, and then they apply those primitives in a specific way to accomplish the goals of their day job. And I think this is an, a very important distinction to have, because as a network engineer, learning these new tools and processes doesn't make you a software developer, unless that's the path you want. I mean, I did that. I did consulting for a number of years. and I was like, I actually really want to write code for a living. Not everybody does that, but that is an occupation change. I think generally it's important to understand that that's not necessarily required. In fact, I would say almost always it's not if you want to stay in networking. The real change that needs to happen is just an additional skill set. You can keep the same occupation, but add the skill sets that enhance your occupational skills. Right? You say, like, I have networking as a skill set, and I'm going to take some of the skill sets that software developers have. I'm not going to go full time into, into software development, but I'm going to take those skills and then apply them in my current occupation as a network reliability engineer. I think that's a very important distinction to make because then everything, you know, everything's very above board, right? You're not talking about replacing network engineers and you're also not talking about outsourcing network management to another team. You're just talking about skill sets. And I think that's where the conversation really needs to be. Well, I could use a hundred analogies, but you know, the problem I have with this approach is it's perfectly fine if you use enough common sense. But quite often people think that just because they know a little bit of adjacent discipline, they are a master in that discipline without realizing how much they don't know. And that's what I think we get with all these blog posts and all these other, look how easy it is to do X thingies. We create people who don't even realize how much they don't know yet. You know, the left-end part of the Dunning-Kruger chart. I was actually just going to bring that up. That's definitely a good descriptor there. For us, those of us that are a little more to the right, you know, that actually do have a lot more experience with this stuff, I think the, the responsibility is ours, right? I think it's human nature to go to, down the path you just described. It is Dunning-Kruger in effect. That's exactly what's happening. This is an observed behavior. Those of us that have experience with this stuff and, and have seen it break and have seen it succeed, it's our job. It's our responsibility to make sure that this stuff isn't painted in a copy-paste this box and you'll have automation. 
it's very important that we go way beyond this. This is one of my biggest challenges with the automation conversation these days, because inevitably, when you go looking for network automation learning and, and resources, you'll find a lot of configuration management, but not much else. To this point, it's not responsible for us to push one very narrow way of doing things because not everybody has that perspective. Not everybody has that use case. We have to be way more nuanced with how we're teaching people about these principles. Let's take programming as an example. You're learning how to be a software developer. You don't learn how to create a program. You learn the primitives of the language. You learn the lower level fundamental concepts. You learn about how you even learn even deeper. You learn about how languages like Go, you know, how the compiler renders what you write in the language against, you know, and makes it mechanically sympathetic. They talk about that in indie car racing thing, I think, but it's mechanically sympathetic with the underlying CPU architecture. You learn about these fundamentals, not because they're directly applicable to what you're doing, but because in peace, you know, in part, they may be in the future. You learn about the fundamentals, then you apply them later. Or like painting, you know, when you're becoming a painter, you don't just learn how to paint the Mona Lisa. You learn about things like pigmentation. You learn about how colors blend together. You learn about the chemical properties of the different paints. And then you're armed with the fundamentals that you can then apply in a, in a varied combination later. And I think this conversation around automation is no different. We really need to be teaching folks about the fundamentals instead of just one way of doing things because they're going to need to render this stuff out themselves. This isn't going to be something you can take off the shelf and implement. You're going to have to build something. You're going to have to compose things together. I think this is the conversation that needs to take place. And we have to, again, we as those have that have gone down this path, it's on us to make sure it's painted in that light. Okay, a side remark, I would really love to see how many Go programmers could actually describe what a compiler does, but let's not go there. So agreeing with everything you just said, how does NRE help us get there? Like I said, I think NRE is a specific implementation of some of these principles. You know, nothing's a panacea. There are some things NRE won't teach you. I think a lot of these concepts of like learning fundamentals and making sure that we're really well grounded in the sort of the core principles of what we're actually doing in terms of our discipline and our skill sets. That's something that you need to do regardless. I don't think that's NRE specific. That's existed for a long time and will always exist. But NRE, I think, again, I think the benefit of NRE is it's a much more credible way of looking at operations. You know, you're no longer relegated to just a you know, do this kind of thing. It's kind of like the difference between sort of imperative and declarative ways of doing things. We've been imperative for so long. I'm a network engineer, so I need to configure things and I need to move things around and, just, and write a, you know, write a Visio and do all these things. But I think the move to NRE is a much more declarative approach. It's a recognition of what is the outcome that I'm trying to achieve and then basically engineering a solution to achieve that outcome. And that outcome might be 99.999% uptime. There are trade-offs associated with that. And there are practices in NRE that help accomplish those trade-offs in, a, again, as eyes wide open way as possible. The way I like to talk about this is if you've ever used a, you know, a cloud service, like say AWS, they have a dashboard out there that talks about the different services they run, like S3 and, and EC2. What they'll do in their dashboard is they break down the status of each of these services by region and they show you like this service is working, this service may be under maintenance, things like that. What they've done is they've presented the information in a way that people that want to know about the status of these services actually wants to consume. What they don't do is they don't talk about you know, router one is online and it's forwarding traffic, you know, such and such throughput with, uh, you know, this amount of latency. They don't talk about that. This isn't to say that that's not important. It is. I think everybody would agree that the underlying infrastructure is very important. It's just meant to promote. It's meant to feed up into a higher level objective. It's sort of table stakes that the network is working. It's not enough to just understand that the network is up and down. This is sort of, you know, the way network monitoring, I think, needs to improve. It's not enough just to talk about the infrastructure in terms of the individual components and, and their capacities. 
We also have to start understanding services that are offered on top of that. I think, again, the cloud service provider model is to promote that information in as relevant a way as possible. And I think as network engineers, one of the best things we can do to, to, to improve our relevance to the business is to understand the services that are using our network. I think to your point, Ivan, earlier, you said something like, I'm paraphrasing, but you said something like, you know, if everything's working, you know, there's really not much you can say other than, you know, things are still working. I think it's sort of sad to look at this way, but it's kind of the, the role of infrastructure or how it has been for a while. You're not really recognized until something's broken and then you're in trouble, right? And that's not super fair. I think the onus is on us as infrastructure professionals to sort of go up the stack a little bit and understand what's using our infrastructure. And then we can start to build metrics on not just, you know, how well we've been up or throughput or latency, but also say, for instance, how quickly we've been able to respond to incidents, you know, how quickly we've been able to make changes in a, in a way that the business required of us. Also in, let's say nothing's changing. How did our sort of network specific indicators, how did those feed up into the higher level business indicators of, again, how well these services were able to, you know, to do the things they needed to do, not just from an uptime perspective, but also, you know, adding features and, and actually innovating. How did our objectives feed up into that? That's a conversation that's just not taking place today. We're still very embroiled in specific network, you know, metrics and lingo that is important. But again, it's not the whole picture. It has to feed up into higher level objectives that are more relevant to the business. And I think the other advantage as well is that once you start having a methodology framework process, whatever we want to call it, that brings the idea of testing into your paradigm of how you're running your organization, then you kind of have to go back and think, how are we going to test a routing change? How does OSPF actually work? And I don't mean type in comp T router space OSPF space. Like that's not how OSPF works. That's how you configure it, right? There's a fundamental change in practitioners having to go back. And I think that kind of raises the overall tide if people have to go back and start answering the question of how do these, like, how would you test to see if a VLAN was propagated properly? Right? There's all these interesting questions of, usually there's beer involved, but like, how would you test these things? And I think that's pretty interesting because it forces us as practitioners to go back and understand the foundations and fundamentals of the technology we work with, which I think your, to your earlier point, Yvonne, is that people don't. A lot of them are just Google script kitties cut, paste, config, and they don't fundamentally understand how this stuff is working. Well, speaking about testing, the first problem we have is that we don't even have unit tests. We are like code programmers in the 1960s. Yeah, I think if we were to just reset, if I were like the grandfather of automation and I could restart this conversation, I would say, you know, configuration management's uh, useful. But I think the first thing that people should do is start to understand how their network is being used and start to codify that. There's actually tools for doing this. The biggest thing is that we don't do today, I think, is understanding, like, what does it mean to say that our network is working? I think traditionally, we talk about things like, you know, up, down, and, you know, throughput and bandwidth and things like that. But that doesn't mean our network is working. That just means our network is a network. <laughs> what does working mean, though? The network doesn't exist to be a network. It exists to serve applications. So inevitably, if we actually want to, if we really, really care about knowing whether or not our network is working, we have to go up the stack. It's just inevitable. We have to go up the stack. I think you could probably find a podcast with the three of us on it from five years ago with one of us saying, how sad is it that ping is still the best tool we have? Yeah, it's tough. Like I said, I think the conversation has been so largely dominated by configuration changes, which again, it's, it's not unimportant. I think it's a good part of the conversation. It's just not the whole picture. I think an easier way to get started in automation, a little less you know, risky, I suppose, if you're hesitating because you feel like the only automation you can do is changing things, I think it's immensely valuable to be able to first 
you know, offline, off the keyboard, understand what your network is actually used for. Talk to your developers in a way that's not antagonistic, but actually sort of selfish. I'm talking to my developers because they keep telling me about things that the network is not doing for them. And rather than just, you know, stomping my feet and saying, well, those developers don't know networking. Instead, I'm going to actually understand their world. And not just for no reason. I'm actually doing it selfishly because I think that's going to save me some pain in the long run. And then when you've understood the sort of, let's say, the top five things that your network is used for, it's not enough to just know that in your head. You have to start rendering that tribal knowledge into a tangible and preferably executable format. And there are a number of tools you can use to do this. You can actually render, you know, the way that your network is supposed to be configured and the services that it's supposed to be offering. And infrastructure is code sort of methodology where you describe those lessons learned in an executable format. And then every time you make a change or even periodically, you can run these tests that say, you know, yeah, the network is not only up, but it's also doing what it's supposed to be doing because these tests actually replicate that. And I think the benefit there is you realize very quickly that you've had blinders on for a while because you sort of paid attention to your own metrics, but the metrics that you care about are not the same metrics that other people care about. And you have to care about both. Again, you have to feed those low-level metrics into a higher-level metric that everybody can relate to. Yeah, and it's amazing what people start doing once they figure out that this is what they should be doing. For example, I know someone who did this extremely simple thingy, codified, as you said, what should go through a firewall. And then after every change in the firewall rules, it looks like this command on ASA and probably on all the other firewalls as well that goes like, oh, check whether this traffic from A to B from this port to this port would be allowed. And he's just running hundreds of those commands to verify that the rule set is still allowing all the required traffic through. Yeah, and the best part about that is that most network engineers are already doing this. They're already doing this, usually not in an automated way. I've done this when I did consulting before I even got into automation. I would go into a shop and they would be telling me about their infrastructure and we'd be going through a change. And inevitably, there'd be that one box in the corner that was old as heck, but it had to stay up. And you never left after a change unless you could reach that application. And everybody has that. Everybody has that baked into their soul, that one thing that they're terrified about whenever they touch the network. And you can't just keep you know that in your head. You have to codify that. You have to make that not just a part of your process, but a, a requirement for moving forward. You have to put into place a process that says, anytime we do anything, this is what working means. And we have to make sure that that passes before moving forward. Okay, all this is extremely useful, but quite often I hear from networking engineers because, you know, they like to have things organized. Do you have a framework for doing this? So is there anything that you already published within NRE scope, let's say, that would make it more than just interesting lifestyle? That would be something that I could take today and run with it and do something useful with it. Yeah, there's plenty. So I would say, again, first step is fundamentals, right? You can't get away with just simply copying things from the internet and, and running them. You have to understand things like Python and Git and all these fundamentals that we've been talking about forever. I think that doesn't change. But on top of that, I think there are some purpose-built tools that really do solve some of the really you know complicated challenges here. Napalm comes to mind. There's a function within Napalm that allows you to verify uh, certain things. So Napalm has a set of functions that allows you to retrieve data from a network device and then you can make assertions about that data. For instance, you know, like I said, everybody has this tribal knowledge. When they log into their infrastructure, they know what should be. They know what correct is. And what they do is when they log into those devices, they compare that with what actually is. It's sort of WSB versus weary, what it should be versus what it really is. This happens all the time. Again, manually, though, 
uh, Napalm Verify allows you to, within the context of uh, data that's returned by one of these functions, you can make assertions on that. I expect that when I retrieve the BGP neighbors of this device, that the returned list of peers is three in length. I expect that the status of all of those peers is up. I expect that the AS is configured thusly. There are all these assertions we can make and codify. And it's actually YAML that you can codify in for this tool specifically that allows you to codify those assertions. I think those assertions, we make those assertions already, but codifying them is so hugely important because then it's not in your head. It's not even in a wiki. It's an executable format. There are other tools. Juniper has JSnappy. It's kind of like Napalm Verify, but instead of using Napalm, it just uses XPath. So anything that use, that it goes across the sort of the XML payload will work. I believe there's an initiative. It's Juniper specific, but I think I'm pretty sure that there's an initiative to make uh, JSnappy compatible with an open config model, which of course Juno supports, but you know also other networking vendors. I think that makes the conversation there a little simpler. One of the reasons Napalm doesn't return everything is because it has to you know provide data models for all the vendors, and of course you can't do that without limiting the scope a little bit. So there's trade-offs there. There's other tools. I released a tool called Todd like four years ago or something like that. I'm actually rebuilding it right now. It's going to be rebuilt, uh, not from scratch per se, but it will be very different. And one of the things that I'll be build, building into it is, by the way, it does sort of data plane testing, so traffic testing. And again, I think the ability to make assertions on things, like I assert that this should be true, and if it's not true, fail. That's a unit testing fundamental. And I think that that is definitely applicable to the way that your network traffic should be working. I expect that Office 365 is reachable with this amount of latency from this site. Those are the kind of assertions that I want to bake into Todd that allow you to say, like, I expect this. Let me know if it's different. And then, of course, there's all kinds of other tools. You can talk about behave. There's all kinds of other tools that you can use to make assertions about how things should be. I think just in general, the tool is less important than making these assertions in a codified way. You can sort of pick the tool that goes with what you want to do. And yes, of course, NRE Labs will either already does, it already has a JSNAPI lesson. There is a lesson in the works uh, for Napalm that will go deeper with that kind of stuff. And then, of course, there will be other lessons for a lot of the other tools, too. Yeah, but these are all low-level tools. People who know what they should be looking for are looking for frameworks. Mm -hmm. Is there anything there? Is there anything that I could take and say, well, I think I should organize my ops according to these principles. I don't expect, you know, a recipe because that doesn't work. But, you know, 12 rules to organize my ops the NRE way. Oh, sure. I guess outside of the tools conversation, again, it's not just about what you're using, but it's also how you're using it. I think if you're not looking at some of the things that have been done in CICD, you should definitely look at. That's one of the technologies and processes that are very crucial to software development. And increasingly, the whole SRE, NRE movement, because again, that movement is very heavily inspired by software development principles. If you're not looking at this, you should at least consider it. The point of this is not necessarily, you know, to become software developers. It's not the point. The point is to learn from some of those lessons and apply them in a network engineering context. So if you're, you know, going forward and you're making all your changes, you know, with SSH directly into the devices, and sort of the way you do testing is, well, if I remember to do it, you know, I'll run a, a quick ping or a quick script from my laptop. You know, that's not sustainable over time. And you'll inevitably forget one of the steps and, and that will cause problems. The framework around doing things in a pipeline, in a CICD pipeline, is to make all of those steps sort of brainless and non-optional. Um, you don't really think about the different, you know, my CICD pipeline for a software tool that I create, for instance, will probably have like 50 different tools in it to do things like automated testing and linting. But I don't think about that. I don't really think about those tools anymore. They're part of the pipeline. And that pipeline is, I think, that framework that you're talking to. 
it's a culture of making those tools just part of the pipeline. Anytime you make a change, it goes through this pipeline and all of these different tools are applied, you know, non-optionally. They're mandatory. They must validate whatever they're trying to validate before you can actually push that change through. You know, this is going to require some cultural changes. Not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody wants to do it seems slower. In fact, it seems like you're slowing down. You're, so you're telling me I can't just make changes directly. I got to go through this pipeline, which takes, you know, sometimes hours to validate a change. It's a cultural change. I think understanding that those processes actually net you greater speed in the long run because you're doing less firefighting. That's a lesson you're just going to have to learn over time. There's no amount of blog posting that I or, or anybody can do to, to convince you quickly. Otherwise, you have to sort of give yourself a chance and give these processes a chance. Okay. Now we are almost an hour into the podcast, and I have this warm and fuzzy feeling that I get occasionally after reading one of those Harvard Business Review case studies. You know, it makes perfect sense, and I totally agree with everything. And then I try to apply that to my particular problem, and I figure out that there's nothing I could hang on to. There's nothing I could just take and start using it. It's all warm and fuzzy and cloudy. So on one hand, we have the tools. Yeah, they're real, they're hard. On the other hand, we have the high-level concepts like you should be doing this, you should be doing that. Is there anything in between today that would link this to? Like I said, if you're talking about something you can purchase or download, I, I think that's just one part of the picture. You have to start thinking about how you apply these things too. I think the best thing you can do, frankly, is get a mentor. It, to your point, Ivan, I think you have to start talking to some folks that have solved these problems within their domains. Not all of it will be you know, immediately relevant to networking. You're going to have to translate some of the specifics into your own discipline. That's uh, just inevitable. But I think the best thing you can do is, is to just get outside your bubble. Go to a conference. Go to a software conference. Go to like Velocity. Again, a lot of software developers, it's just, that's their Cisco Live. That's what they go to, right? You know, not a lot of network engineers go to those things because, yeah, they, they feel like there's just not, you know, much there for them. And certainly a lot of the skill sets or tools won't be immediately relevant. It's not like, you know, you can take everything that the software developers are doing and, and apply it. That's not true. But I think, that, again, the biggest problem that we deal with in infrastructure these days is just not knowing what we don't know. We've got to get outside our comfort zone and start to give everything a chance. Ask yourself the question, could I feasibly use the principles behind what these software developers are talking about? to enhance my own job as a network engineer? I don't think the answer will be yes all the time, but I think it'll be yes way more often than we expect. Any more questions, Chris? You're sort of quiet, or did you drop off? No, no, I'm here. I'm struggling also to find a good answer to the question of how do you connect tools to these principles? I think sometimes the answer to that is hard work. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually okay with that, right? Is that I think and I feel as an industry, as a profession, that we are going through this kind of painful metamorphosis. And I think that perhaps that it's pain and hard work is the answer to that question. I don't know that there is. I wish there was, but I think that's what we're going to have to learn how these principles apply directly to us, what works, what doesn't, throw it away and as a community share and try to, to codify that knowledge to create that document, maybe. Maybe we're just mm -hmm. too early in the process. It's a valid question. It's a great question. I just don't know what the answer would be. <laughs> okay, so let's wrap it right here. As I always tell people, if it wouldn't be hard, it would be worth doing anyway, because everyone else would be doing it. Matt, if people want to learn more about NRE or if they want to send you follow-up questions, where could they get more information and how can they reach you? 
Sure, yeah. We have a blog at networkreliability.engineering, and there's a link at the top to the actual labs exercises. So we, we talk about some of the concepts in the blog, and then a lot of those blogs will relate to specific lessons that we teach. If you want to dive into a specific tool, for instance, that, that would be a good place to go. So networkreliability.engineering is a good resource. I do still blog at keepingaclasslist.net. Uh, my time is spread a little thin these days, but I'm still still maintaining that. If you want to ask questions about these concepts, you know, my DMs on Twitter are open. It's uh, Mirdin, M-I-E-R-D-I-N. And I know we have, uh, you know, a lot of other folks like Derek Winkworth. He's critical to a lot of these efforts, especially Juniper related. But, you know, those of you listening will undoubtedly know him from other initiatives around the industry for sure. He couldn't make it during this podcast, but I know he would love to field questions. I know he's on Twitter as well as Cloud Toad. Yep, just how it sounds, Cloud Toad. And there's a lot of other folks in the space. I know a lot of uh, some of our customers are doing this kind of thing. You know, Riot Games is heavily involved with NRE. They actually have job postings on there. So I would just say, again, get outside your comfort zone. You know, look around the industry and see what other people are doing and give it a chance. Thanks a million for being with us, Matt. Chris, if people want to follow you, how can they do that? So Netman Chris on Twitter. I have a blog at controlissues.net, which I have to spend more time on. And I keep saying that. So I will uh, try to make that happen over the holidays. Perfect. And I'm Ivan Pepelniak. You've been listening to Software Gone Wild. And the reason I agree so vehemently with Matt is that I try to push people to do more network automation in real life and encounter all these challenges I've been mentioning before. And we try to solve that in the Building Network Automation Solutions online course. Sometimes we succeed with great results. Sometimes the results aren't so good because people hit limitations within the, their organizations, but there's not much we can do about that. To follow us, just go to ipspace.net and start exploring. I think, Yvonne, sometimes we successfully learn what doesn't work. That's one of the most valuable lessons. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.